Hello and welcome to the Dispatch Podcast Week in Review. Hello, Carol. Hi, Paul. It's the 2nd of December. That's right. December with a D. So we are rapidly approaching the end of the year. We have a busy podcast today because we have a lot of questions from the audience. Yes. So uh, we'll get started. I've got a few first. Mm -hmm. Paul. Pfizer hosted an event in Sydney yesterday with a discussion about pandemic preparedness. Some interesting insights were shared. Uh, shout out to Pfizer for doing these events. Uh, it's the first in a while. I think they had to stop them or delay a few uh, during the pandemic. <laughs> so it makes sense to start with a discussion about the pandemic. The quality of the speakers was really high and I really enjoyed the discussion. So thank you to the company. I thought there were some really interesting insights. And I know we have a couple of questions coming out of uh, that session later. But I do just uh, uh, want to particularly talk about Anne Harris, the managing director of Pfizer, talked about how the company had to pivot during the pandemic. That traditionally companies do not talk about their products and vaccines publicly uh, for obvious reasons. They're not really allowed to. And the uh, industry code of conduct sets pretty clear rules for or a framework for how they can. But she talked about how the company was just uh, so frustrated and losing the misinformation battle that they decided to uh, get a little bit more involved and that the industry needs to think about that going forward. And even you know some of the other panellists also said, look, the fact is that the people who know more about these products than anyone are the companies that develop them and it actually makes sense for companies to be involved in the discussion about specific products and and vaccines, so that's a that will be a big shift for the industry, pharmaceutical industry, if they do that. But I do think that what Anne Harris said yesterday makes a lot of sense. Is that the alternative is just to sit back, sit and, back and watch them get it wrong, and watch people watch people get it wrong. So I thought that was that was. Now we're going to come back to that later in in the podcast. But I thought that was really good. And just once again, congratulations to Pfizer for holding the event. And you spoke at a pharmacy conference earlier this week. What was that about? Pharmacy Alliance Group, uh, the really great little company that's does a lot of work with individual pharmacies. Uh, I've spoken at their Catalyst conference now five or six times. They're very kind to always invite me back. The audience is essentially made up of pharmacists. And I, I, you know, I was introduced as controversial. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure I don't want to be controversial, but I don't think I am. But I do just want to say that one April price cuts that are coming up was really central to the discussion they were they were having. I just want the rest of the industry to think about that. You know, the consequences of this, and that you've even got medicine suppliers and intermediaries putting on staff to help individual pharmacies manage with the issues that it creates, so the flow-on effect of this pricing framework. And so I thought that was that was really interesting and led me to write another article, which I think we're going to talk about. <laughs> you wrote an article this week that the current issue over price cuts took place in a framework that should never be allowed to happen again. Did you get much of a response? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Generally, when you write something like that, you don't get a lot of response, but this one did get quite a bit of response. I don't think it's just me thinking this. I just think the framework for negotiating those things leads to the sort of consequences we talked about. Ultimately, the, the, end, the end user of the product, which is a patient, suffers consequences. But this is just such a dreadful policy that was negotiated in secret. Uh, it's the equivalent of a price reduction bomb. And we're now picking through the remains of this city to see which buildings are worth saving. That manifested at the pharmacy conference earlier this week where they were talking about having to deal with 1 April and what that means for them and the cost to the system of doing that. But I, I really just think 
the industry gets it fundamentally wrong if they think they can go into a room with a great bunch of officials, lock the door, keep everyone else out and get a good outcome. That's mm. just not going to happen. The opposite happens. There are always negative outcomes because it's when you're at your most vulnerable. The industry wants as many people in these rooms as possible, patients, clinicians, other other parts of the pharmacy, pharmacy and pharmaceutical sector. And I'm increasingly thinking that actually the medicines and medical device and diagnostic sectors should work more closely together. So there was a response. It was mostly mostly positive and I'm not going to stop saying it. Okay, and now questions from listeners. Do you think the community and even the sector has a bit of pandemic fatigue and industry should be take, talking about something else? The concepts of supply chain, et cetera, were important in the Pfizer session. The concepts of supply chain, et cetera, were important in the Pfizer session, but couching in terms of COVID is lost on the community and I think lost on the government. Can we also start caring about something else, please? Yeah, well, obviously, that this, the, the tiredness, pandemic weariness came up yesterday. People just want to move on. I think there is an, is, there is an element of that. doesn't mean we shouldn't still talk about it. I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. No, I think there is an element of we've been talking about this for two and a half years and government, yeah. governments are a little bit to blame when you had you know the state premiers and the prime minister doing those daily press conferences and their offices were obviously liaising on the time. So we would have three or four hours every single day of jurisdictional press conferences announcing COVID numbers. So there's no surprise people are pretty fed up with it. Maybe now, and I think this was reflected in the Pfizer event yesterday, was now the talk is sort of moving to, well, how how are we going to go forward on this and what do we need to do next time? Uh, I think also yesterday there was a lot of talk about antimicrobial resistance with Anne Harris saying, well, that's just an enduring pandemic that we're not really dealing with. So mm. yes and no to that question. There is increasing chatter about the vaccine push no longer being about healthcare but about pharmaceutical company greed. Is the industry at risk of losing the social capital they have built with the community over the last 12 months if they don't dial it down on COVID? Yeah, that's a, t- that's a hard one to answer because the, there's two things here is that, yes, the companies who've produced the COVID vaccines and antivirals have done well commercially out of it, but the companies that haven't are suffering the consequences of the, of the pandemic in a lot of ways because the demand hasn't returned. So some companies have done, done commercially well out of it and others others have not. So the majority of companies, I think, would like to move on and stop talking about it. That's fair enough. I think there remains a pretty high appetite in government to get people vaccinated and get the antivirals out there. And we see that almost every month now with the antivirals, the antiviral push. There are still community awareness campaigns. So I think it, there's an element of companies responding to the environment yeah. on this, but Maybe taking a step back and thinking about the fact that the industry does need a wider framework for its advocacy that isn't entirely COVID focused, but and maybe it doesn't have maybe maybe it doesn't have have that. As for the social capital, well, I don't think that was ever going to last that long, <laughs> to be honest. And I and I frankly, I don't think people should worry about it. You know, the industry, the pharmaceutical industry, like all industries, does have a. There is an element of we want to be loved, but I don't know why. Yeah, we need them. We don't have to love them. Yeah, you don't have to love them. It's like, you know, I hate the banks, but I'm not going to put my money anywhere else. <laughs> I, I don't think industry should get too worried about this sort of wanting to be loved by the community thing. I think as long as you're respected, and we see that the industry is respected by the the fact that people have great faith in in their products. Yeah. So don't worry about it is my, is my, <laughs> is my overarching thought. 
Okay. Hakuna Matata, Paul says. <laughs> what do you think about the government releasing all sorts of social media on medicines being cheaper for general patients on 1 January while putting up medicines for concessional patients by 50 cents? Yeah, well, governments, you know, politicians do what politicians do. Yeah. We get this a lot in medicines policy recently and where it's about the headline and the reduction in the general copay whilst welcome was sort of the cheapest thing they could do. Mm. It's not actually going to benefit many people. And the vast majority of medicines in Australia are dispensed to concessionals. Well, it's 30%, right? So that is a bit of a... There aren't many medicines priced between $42.50 and $30. Yeah, that's... I mean, <laughs> I mean, if they're on the PBS. Yeah, so some people, they're going to derive a benefit, but the vast majority of people will not derive a significant benefit from this. The concessional copay is going up by fifty cents, which is a lot. It's a lot when you're on a pretty fixed income. Yeah, in, a, in an era of high inflation. So I, I do think there needs to be a broader discussion here about medicines and the cost of medicines. And, and I agree with the premise of the question that well, it's great for those patients who are getting a medicine that currently the price of which currently falls between thirty dollars and forty two dollars fifty. Yeah, but. Only 9% of PBS scripts are dispensed to general patients. At Is that full, right? At, yeah. So there are a, about 100 million prescriptions that are dispensed below the copay, the general copay. But of the 210 million scripts <laughs> dispensed with a subsidy in Australia, around 190 <laughs> million Jeez. are dispensed to concessional patients. Yeah. Wow. So – I think better access has talked about our third tier, and I think that's right. I mean, someone like me should pay the highest amount. I should be paying the maximum amount. I should not be paying the same as a family with three kids. Yeah. A couple of which have, might have chronic conditions. That's, that's just fundamentally unfair to me. And Okay, what's happening with ministerial discretion? Oh, dear. Well, <laughs> the minister's office is trying to work out what to do. I think it's – Complex because when official has made a decision, if a minister wants those decisions adjusted, the right way to do it is to take back the power. Now, the, the problem is if they introduce a new approach or new factors in making these decisions, a company that's been denied discretion <laughs> might ask why. Hopefully, we'll, we'll find out soon enough and hopefully they're good decisions that specifically – support those companies that raised concerns 12 months ago mm. and whose concerns were blithely dismissed. Why do you think they cancelled Senate estimates last night? Mm. Mm. Do you think the timing of the prosthesis list, Bill, had something to do with it? Do you think the device industry will be as stupid as the medicines <laughs> industry and support rushing the bill through without debate? I don't know why they cancelled estimates. It means we don't get a discussion about outcome two, which is the PBS, Medicare, Medicare compliance and private health insurance, which seems odd to me given the claims around Medicare compliance. But anyway, so they'll come back in February or whenever it is. I don't know whether it would relate to the PL list. I would urge everyone to focus on what's happening with the prosthesis list. Uh, this is just a mess. <laughs> the legislation was put to me a couple of weeks ago that the legislation is minor. It is not. It is three separate bills that fundamentally change a whole raft of things around the PL. If the medical device sector 
uh, does not push for close parliamentary scrutiny of these changes because it also relates to cost recovery, giving the minister the power to set the fees however they like, then you'll be, you'll be engaging in an act of ritual suicide, much the same as the pharmaceutical industry did 12 months ago. This bill should be, should be closely scrutinised and the changes need to be scrutinised. Uh, three bills on one area of policy is a big change. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think of the government not having a MyEFO process or at least not publishing MyEFO? Do you think it means they haven't taken any decisions on things during that intervening period? What does it mean, if anything? Yeah, it's weird not to have a MyEFO. I, I, I know they just had a budget, but a MyEFO is just a budget update. It's actually quite a brief document. It's not detailed like a full budget. It's just this is what we've done since the budget. So my EFO would, would, would generally come out just before Christmas. It's literally Christmas Eve sometimes. Mm. And by then it will be almost two months since the budget was delivered. Are we meant to believe there have been no decisions taken in that time? No. There's just no way that's, that's the case. So I don't, under, I don't understand why there's no my EFO. I mean, I, 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 it's a reprieve for some of the officials who I really feel for. They did a pre-budget budget process. The government was elected in May. They went straight into a full budget process and now they'll be in the budget process for next May. So it is complex. Mm. But my info is just an update. It's not a, it's not a whole budget with six, seven different budget papers. It's just one fairly short document that just relates to things previously or announced since since the budget. So I'm I'm confused as to why there isn't one. I don't know I don't know what it means other than, but I know it certainly can't mean they're not going to spend anything. Yeah. <laughs> so the next time we get a budget update is going to be in May, and that's when we get the full budget, and we're going to have an estimates session in February. So I don't know what that's going to be about. So anyway, so we we will. Wait and see, I suppose. Carol? Oh, so questions. We have a LinkedIn. If you don't trust Paul, <laughs> and I mean, I don't blame you, uh, I manage the LinkedIn for the Dispatch podcast and I promise not to tell him it was you that asked the question. <laughs> we, we are starting to get lots of questions. We so are. Please keep them coming. They're really good. We like the dialogue and uh, we'll try and control the Bassett better next time. Thank, <laughs> thank you, Carol. Thanks, Paul.